Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, with continually rising lake levels, what does the future hold for Hamilton's Beach Strip? Also, Robert Mueller addressed the media for the first time yesterday to reiterate what was in his report. And a local NDP MPP has brought forward a bill named after her little sister that would establish a pediatric hospice palliative care strategy. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about, well, one of the rather interesting parts of the city, and that's the uh, the beachfront, the Hamilton's Beach Strip, that is, especially in the east end of the city. Uh, this is a, an area that's gone through quite a metamorphosis over the last little while of rejuvenation lately. At one point, they were talking about knocking a lot of the houses down there, but uh, now people seem to want to move there, except for one tiny little thing. Uh, there's flooding almost consistently there now. And uh, you've seen the reporting, I guess, on this over the last couple of days, uh, reporting that some people actually keep rowboats in their basements now uh, to get rid of their stuff once the, the raw water levels start to rise. This is uh, right out in the east end of the city. That's Ward 5. Chad Collins is the counselor for that area. And uh, we want to bring him onto the program to explain a little bit about what's going on. Chad, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. The flooding down there, Chad, has gone from a, at one point was a growing concern to, and I don't mean to overstate this, but it looks as if it's getting down to a crisis situation. It really is. Uh, you and I were, I th- you know, you had me on in 217 when we were at that point in time talking about the highest lake levels in, yeah. uh, in a century. And we, you know, we, we talked about whether this is the new normal. And I, and I think, you know, just after two years of time, we could, we can, um, definitively say that it looks like um you know these lake levels are a sign of things to come and um and yeah so it's it's we've experienced high lake levels in the past on the beach strip and you know if you go back through the the archives and the files um you know you'll see that in the 70s we had a couple of high years and um and we had one really bad year in the 1990s in the mid 90s when I was just uh, on council and um and then now over the last couple of years you know, we're starting to see the effects of, uh, you know, and many people are pointing to the International Joint Commission who controls the lake levels. And so it becomes a situation where when this commission tries to help those people who are in Ottawa or Montreal, we've seen the pictures on TV in terms of what's happening there and the impact that it's having on the community. Uh, when they when they they back up the, the, the water there to try to assist, it, it has a domino effect here to, uh, for other places along the shoreline of Lake Ontario downstream. And, um, and and that obviously has a lot to do with climate change. And so it's, again, not something that um, we haven't seen before on the beach strip, but it is happening more regularly now. And, and by the way, this we're talking with this particular neighborhood, and I get, because I think it's very important uh, because of some of the things that are happening around there. But uh, you're, you're facing this, Chad, all the way along the waterfront. I mean, east side, west side, it's, it's everywhere now. Yeah, and it's a groundwater issue. So for many people, you know, as we, we look at what happens elsewhere, um, you know, we see overland flooding, we see rivers overflowing their banks, and, uh, and that has a, a, an issue for people as, it, as, the, as the rivers rise in certain areas. You know, it's at their front door and then inside their house. It, on the beach strip, all of those homes are built on a large sandbar. And so when the water, uh, when the lake levels go up, that water level comes up through the ground and comes in through people's weeping tiles and other uh, cracks that they may have in, in the home. And, um, and it's, you know, it's in their basement. And so it's something that, you know, for people who've been on the beach trip for 30 or 40 years, um, they've, they've come to, to live with and they found ways to adapt. And you talked about, you know, people with rowboats and we, we had one gentleman, um, who, who had his furnace, uh, connected onto a rowboat. And, and in those years where there were high lake levels, that boat, um, you know, just kind of floated in his basement and his furnace was high and dry. And, um, and so, you know, that's, 
again, it was part of living on the beach for many years, but we've seen a lot of investment recently, as you noted, and we've seen a lot of people move in from other parts of, uh, of southern Ontario and elsewhere, and they're making very large investments. In fact, we have an application right now for someone who's looking at building a $2 million home, and so it you know, we're, we're, we're just seeing a lot of, um, a, a lot of activity and a lot of renewal in that area. And for these people who haven't been accustomed to the, to the history behind, uh, the neighborhood and, and, um, and the impact that the lake has had on the neighborhood, it, it comes as quite a surprise to them. What's this doing? I mean, I'm sure you hear from the residents on this too. And, and uh, there's a cost to this. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the, to the residents, but I mean, even from the standpoint of, of things like insurance costs, I mean, this is going to, I guess, going to be prohibitive for an awful lot of people. It is. I mean, fortunately, we have you know many of the homes on the beach have uh, either a very small basement that is used for um, storage purposes and, and or a crawl space. And, and so some pumps are just a fact of life. Um, it, it's not like a, a traditional neighborhood we might see across the city where people have their rec room and their large TVs and, and other uh, things, you know, in the lower part of their home. Uh, you know, many of the homes have been built around the, the issue of, of high lake levels and flooding. And and we've seen some people over the years go to Committee of Adjustment, unfortunately, and, and ask for variances. And so there are people who have constructed in ways and means in which it, you know, they have a, there's a greater impact on their home than others. Um, but people are coping, Bill. And, and again, it, you know, it's peaks and valleys in terms of what we're dealing with. And, and so there's a real impact on, on people in terms of living with that inconvenience. We see some pump lines all over the side streets, all over Beach Boulevard, and you see the water flowing. And, of course, the city trucks are down there constantly in terms of we've rented very, very large pumps, and we're circulating that that water off of the street to make sure that the sidewalks and streets are passable for pedestrians and motorists, and trying to find nooks and crannies in the neighborhoods in which to pump it, where it just circulates back into either the bay or, or into the into the neighborhood. And so I, I think the best word is that people are coping. And, um, and it's come at a great cost, not just to them financially, where, you know, they're paying uh, higher uh, utility bills because those pumps are constantly running. Uh, the city's also paying, you know, we I think in 2017, we paid uh, seven hundred to $800,000 for uh, staff time and equipment to deal with that situation. We're probably looking at similar costs this year. And there's a, there's a very large study that... Um, you know that we commissioned at the end of 217 and and those results will be out this summer and i think we'll be looking at a large pumping station Uh, we'll be looking at um, most likely prohibition of building below grade and so right now as i mentioned you're allowed to build a crawl space or a very small basement for your furnace and other types of utilities and I, i think we may reach the point though where everything has to be built above grade and um, and we'll find other uh, improvements that need to be made through that study, and that will come at a cost. And of course, you know, you had me on a couple of weeks ago where we did receive uh, disaster relief funding yeah, yeah. from the federal government, and we're going to start to see uh, the hardening of that shoreline, whether it means groins out into the lake with very large um, blocks, or um, you know, armor stones all along um, the pathway there to protect not just the city's public investment, but uh, individual homes as well. So, so it's it's a changing landscape down there, it, and, and it all has to do with climate change. And I think this is just the start of something probably bigger to come. At, um, you know, as we we see changes across the city, whether it's with the escarpment and with our creeks and valleys, and the shoreline here along the lake, and of course, you know, you've covered the the West Harbor impacts as well with the with the waterfront trail there, and and what's happening around the high level bridge. Um, these all these signs point to a changing climate and. Um, and a need for us to make investments to cope with that. And, and am I 
it couldn't come at a worse time. I mean, there's never a good time for something like this. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But you referenced the, uh, the the late 1990s a little while ago, and, and people were actually leaving that area, Chad, as you recall. We had that debate at city council around those times. There was a member of a motion, very controversial motion at the time, to actually have the city buy out a lot of those properties uh, and just you know say, okay, we're going to figure something out later on. Uh, but now all of a sudden there's reinvestment starting to happen here. I mean, you and I talked about this when you were on site, this was a few years ago, I guess, with the, mm-hmm. the women in law build for the, the Habitat house down there. That's right. Right across the road, they're building houses worth a million dollars. And people are yeah. actually looking now for land so they can do these. I mean, uh, and, and these are huge places. I mean, there's, there's got to be a concern here about the long-term benefit to, this, to, to actually investing down there now if this is going to be a continuance. Yeah, you know, I'm very proud of council's investments there. You know, successive city councils have invested not just in the West Harbor, but in the Beach Strip community. And it wasn't too long ago, as you just referenced, Bill, that, um, you know, we had trouble selling some of those vacant lots in 2003 and 2004. We put them up for public tender. And many of our lakefront lots that were, you know, some of the lots were 60 foot, uh, 60 feet wide by 200 um, right on the on the lake. And we had no, no no takers. You know, we were, we were selling some of them for forty or fifty thousand dollars, and um, a lot has changed since then. You know, we made the investment in the trail, and, and that came with some controversy. We had a number of people on the beach who were concerned about property values and, and other things associated with it. We've made a number of investments into some of the parks down there, with the Dieppe Memorial, as well as Jimmy Lomax Park, Reg Wheeler Park, and other places. And we've made uh, infrastructure improvements. And so, you know, a, a lot of public money has gone into that neighborhood, and we're starting to see the results of that. And, you know, we're, we're starting to see people from Toronto uh, move into that neighborhood now. And, and as I mentioned, we, it was just uh, three years, four years ago that we witnessed our first million-dollar sale, and now we're poised to see our first $2 million home. And, and so, you know, that's just in a span of 10 or 15 years. So I, I'm very proud of the fact that that's occurred. And I, and I think it just speaks to the whole issue of making sure that, you know, whatever climate change, in, in, sorry, climate change impacts occur in that neighbourhood, that the city is prepared with our partners at the pro- provincial and federal level to respond to those issues because it, it has become a very desirable place to live. Everybody wants to be around the water, not just from a residential but recreational perspective. And it's important to ensure that we don't end up in a situation where uh, people are moving out of the neighbourhood as they were many years ago for environmental reasons. And of course, you know, we're still living with all of the air quality issues related to the industrial giants that are just along the shore of the Bayline, uh, sorry, the Bay Shore over there. And um, so that problem hasn't gone away. But we've made great inroads in other areas. And um, and again, I, I, you know, I think we need to monitor this, this situation closely. And whatever report comes out in the summer with recommendations, I, I think Council needs to be prepared to make those investments, again, with our partners. Uh, to ensure that this remains a very livable neighborhood. It, there's a two-pronged approach here, obviously. The short-term solution, and you mentioned the funding from the federal government to try to help the trail and, and the rebuilding of that, and that's, that's mm-hmm. important. I'm glad that came out. Uh, now you've got the, pl- the flooding problem, which is, as I say, not a new one, but it seems to just be getting worse yep. uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, how does council develop a long-term plan to deal with this? If, if you're right, and the, boy, the numbers seem to indicate you are, Chad, that this is the new normal, uh, there's going to have to be some sort of a long-term plan because, I mean, the the federal funding and what you're doing down on the on the, the beach strip right now, it, that, that's short-term stuff. But, I mean, obviously, I, I know people that live down there, and I, obviously you do. It's your area. That's your riding. They don't want to leave. They love it down there. But they're saying, look, we got to do something about this. They do, and it, it, it really means, uh, you know, constant studies in terms of um, weather patterns and um, monitoring lake levels 
and um, and and looking at those engineer reports that that tell us you know if people are going to make a substantial investment in building a new home and we still have dozens of vacant lots down there. Um, you know, these are the parameters, these are the policy changes that need to be made to ensure that we're not contributing to an already strained uh, situation. Um, it, it means, you know, looking for, again, at those same engineering reports, if we want to have recreational amenities along the lakeshore, these are some of the changes and improvements that w- that we need to make. And, um, and, and that's not just my area, of course. You know, Councillor Pearson has people that live right on the water. They have private uh, break walls. They have, um, you know, we, we all watched with interest in 217 where the the waves were coming right up over top of people houses and so i'm I'm very fortunate that i have a you know the the dunes there along the beach that protect my residential area from some of the wave action Councillor pearson's uh, ward has waves that are that are actually you know breaching these walls they're into people's backyards they're into their houses and they're right over the roof and so that that becomes a much more trying situation because we just don't have a lot of land or real estate to deal with in terms of making improvements so that, I think, Bill, would probably be the, the, the most difficult issue to deal with, where we have historical developments that are right on the water. We see that in other communities, but in, in her ward in particular, that, that would become the most trying, where it's hard to make public investments on private property. And uh, and those residents will be forced to, to make substantial investments, most likely you know, out of their own pockets. And, and by the way, we, we're obviously focusing on this because this is our community, but this is not a Hamilton-only problem. I mean, I, mm-hmm. uh, Toronto Island's uh, been having the same sorts of situations for the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. There's got to be a concerted effort, and, and uh, by I, I would think both senior levels of government, both federal and provincial governments, to say, look, at this is the new normal. Let's develop a strategy here because it's not just Hamilton. It's Toronto. It's, it's everybody who's on the waterfront right now that's going to be impacted and is already being impacted by this. Yeah, and, and of course, those water levels are are expected to rise over the next uh, several decades. And so, for places like Toronto Island, where you know yesterday they were reporting, you know, fish on on their roadways, um, you know that I, again, it, it's back to that phrase that you just used: it's the new normal, Bill. And, and it means trying to find creative ways and means in which to cope with these years where the, you know we we see record uh, lake levels. And and I I really don't know what the answer is in terms of solving it completely. I, I, I really think it is an issue of coping and trying to make the best of a very bad situation um, and, and being cognizant of the fact that it is quality of life issue for people. Uh, it, it's very difficult to, to know that we have people living in our community that have three or four feet of water uh, constantly in their basement for, you know, six or seven months of the year. The lake levels are anticipated to continue to rise through July. At that point in time, we'll start to see them subside. And then there's a big question in terms of whether we're going through the same exercise next year. Are there health concerns about this? I mean, when rising water levels, you don't know what's going on. I mean, obviously, there's a possibility of mold and things of that nature. So this is mm-hmm. this is this is a health and safety issue too, isn't it? It is. It is, and we we have all of our departments, um, you know, looking at it, especially for those homes that are that are new builds. Uh, you know, some of the I would say some of the the new builds. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned about the foundations. Some of the older houses have been built. To, you know, very creatively to to deal with, you know, water in, in the lower level. I'm not certain that the newer builds maybe have that capacity. So we've had our building and engineering departments looking at this. Um, you know, public health, as you mentioned, it, it's an issue because uh, as we get uh, stagnant water on some of our roadways, when we get into June and July, we get those hot summer days. There's, the, you know, the concern about uh, West Nile and, and those types of things. And so we're, um, we're very cognizant of all of those issues as it relates to uh, public health. And, uh, and I think that report, Bill, that, that is to come out in July and, and or August 
will go a long way to um, giving us a, bl- a plan to ensure that we're looking at all aspects of flooding. It's not just keeping the water off our roadway or out of people's basements. It's about an all-encompassing report to deal with the shoreline, quality of, quality of life issues, and, and, and on all things related to rising lake levels and its impact on our population. Well, it's uh, it's part of our ecosystem, and uh, it's uh, one of the things I think that ranks Hamilton great that we're right by the waterfront. But, boy, we've got some concerns. Chad, we'll yep. stay in touch as you uh, get this report and develop the strategy. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks very much, Bill. Chad Collins, the uh, counselor for Ward 5, which, of course, uh, covers Hamilton's Beach Strip. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Much to the surprise of an awful lot of people, uh, uh, special counsel, well, I guess really former special counsel because he resigned yesterday, Robert Mueller addressed the media yesterday in Washington, for, actually for the first time in a long time, uh, to actually hear his voice. He's been uh, the silent one who's been doing all this work. But uh, he sent a couple of messages, I guess, with what he was doing yesterday. One of them, of course, was to reiterate that uh, in his report that he does not exonerate uh, the president in any of the dealings that went on uh, and a couple of other things that were going on. Uh, So what is the fallout from this? What are the implications on this? Obviously, Democrats and Republicans are uh, responding to this. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is uh, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Thanks for coming in today. Good to have you here. My pleasure. Before we get into what happened yesterday... I want you to address uh, one of the tweets that uh, Trump came out with today. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen it. I have it right in front of me, Bill. (laughs) Uh, I I have nothing to do with Russia helping me get elected. Mm -hmm. That's the first time that he's ever acknowledged that there was even an intent by Russia to favor him over Hillary Clinton. He's been doing, of course, the whole witch hunt hoax stuff forever. Uh, And when he did, you know, the interesting thing about Trump, which I find fascinating from a communications perspective, is that... He fights on all fronts all the time. So he will fight different battles where the messages, when you line them all up, actually contradict each other, but he doesn't care. If anything works, he's going to fight it, right? So he's putting out all these things. Nothing happened, nothing with Russia, nothing with Russia. But if there was Russia, then it was Hillary who they were trying to help, right? Check out Hillary serving all that stuff. So he he puts out these contradictory messages that, you know, kind of gaslight everybody and make everybody a little bit crazy. But never in all of that rhetoric and in all of the tweets, about the witch hunt and the hoax. Has he ever tied Russia with a preference for him, even after Putin admitted in Helsinki that he wanted Trump to win, right? Trump still never, ever did that. But in this tweet, which some people are calling Freudian, uh, he made the comment, you know, and I'll I'll read it because I think the context matters. He says, Russia, Russia, Russia. This is, of course, after Mueller. That's all you heard at the beginning of this witch hunt hoax. And now Russia has disappeared because I had nothing to do with Russia helping me to get elected. It was a crime that didn't exist. So now the Dems and their partner, the fake news media, et cetera, et cetera. That little bit in there where he acknowledges that there was help to get him particularly elected. It's not a shock for anybody who's been following it all closely, but for him to actually slip up and say that, it, it was pretty stunning. But there's a couple of other elements to this, too. And, and, and I think what this does is underscores one of the points that came up with Mueller's statement yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that he was quite pointed, I think, in trying to, uh, uh, once again, tell people that, look, at we did not say we didn't find anything wrong. We said we didn't find enough evidence to actually lay a charge. Uh, and, and then there's another reason why he never laid the charge. Uh, does this does this tweet today open up the idea of collusion once again? Well, I think what 
I think what we saw in volume one, and, and Trump just did a 17-minute um, presser in front of Air Force One like he loves to do, or Marine One on his way to Air Force yeah. One. Loves the power of those helicopter blades behind him, right? <laughs> uh, and it's, all, so, it's all about the shoot, right? right, right the, the backdrop, the right, follow-up. Right. Loves, the, loves the show of strength. Uh, it's as militaristic as you can kind of get in, mm. in U.S. iconography For at the moment. For guy bone spurs. Right, right. So when he's uh, in front of Marine One, he does this these press conferences, right? And so today what was really interesting was that when he, he, he started off with, you know, I'm proud to do this, blah, blah, blah. Here's the agenda for the day. It was very presidential. And then somebody asked him the question, is Mueller still an honorable man? Because when the Mueller report was wrapped up and he thought he was in the clear, he said how honorable he was. So then you heard him go off on Mueller for about five minutes about all the three different reasons why Mueller is compromised, et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, and so he's just attacking, attacking. At the same time, though, he talked about the fact that the first part of the Mueller, the one that dealt with Russia, said that there was no underlying crime of collusion. Therefore, in the second one, where it talks about the 10 obstruction of justice issues around his behavior, it can't be obstruction, as Barr said, because there's no underlying crime, right? So this is what he's kind of trying to get to in this tweet. He's, he's trying to say, you know, even if I did something wrong, it couldn't be legally wrong because there was no illegality in terms of Russia. And so I don't think this opens up the question of collusion being a factor anymore. Uh, but what it doesn't do is it doesn't take away the 10 minutes of Robert Mueller yesterday saying very clearly, even though it was a double negative, if we'd found something that, you know, that was a crime, um, if we found out that he hadn't committed a crime, we would have said so. In other words, uh, there was a crime there in our estimation, obstruction of justice, of justice, but we weren't able, based on our own interpretation of the Department of Justice memo from years ago, we weren't able to indict a sitting president and wouldn't be fair to indict a guy who can't go to court. So Mueller made a decision based on policy, uh, but he had seen Barr and Trump make it a binary for the last six weeks saying, well, if he was not guilty, he's innocent. That wasn't what happened. There was nuance in between those two positions, and Mueller had to come out yesterday and remind us of it. Well, that statement that he made, and he reiterated it right at the end mm -hmm. of his presentation yesterday, uh, basically points directly to the fact that, that Bill Barr lied. Right. He lied to, to all of us, I guess, when he said that I had a conversation with, with Mueller, and uh, he said, no, that, that memo had nothing to do with the decision. It had everything to do with the decision, because from day one, according to what Mueller said yesterday, they said, we can't go down that road because of that. Right. So they, that, that, that predated everything else that they did in the investigation. Absolutely. So, uh, so Barr just boldface lied to everybody about that. So what's really informative for everyone, I think, in this is to realize, and going into the 2020 election, that there really is no norm they won't break. Right. So to preempt this investigation, this $40 million investigation, even though the findings were nuanced and not as damning as people hoped Mueller would come back with, to preempt it with their own spin and even to lie, not just in that press conference, but in front of Congress, the Attorney General of the United States, in order to reframe the narrative on this. Uh, that's pretty That's pretty stunning in a world where we're inundated with things all day long. I mean, Trump just announced this morning he He's going to have a major league biggest comment ever on immigration and the border. You know, he wants to turn mm -hmm. the page off of Mueller. I mean, these guys just will will do just about anything. Uh, and I think it's it's informative. And there should be not just an impeachment potentially against Trump. That yesterday might be a catalyst for that. But also Barr. I mean, if the Attorney General of the United States is allowed to get away with clearly what he's done, um, then, uh, you know, it's a slippery slope towards losing their status as a democracy.
Well, when we saw that there were some differences in, in, in Barr's interpretation, and I'll use that term loosely, there was always that, that fail-safe to say, well, you know what, maybe it would, they just misunderstood each other. But it was pretty clear from what Mueller said yesterday, plus the letter that the Mueller letter, sent to Barr exactly. that said, you are mischaracterizing everything we've done. Yep. And, and he basically said that again yesterday. And what was so powerful yesterday was that uh, he had to do it on the day where he was no longer working for Barr. He was resigning. Yeah. And even though he doesn't want to testify, too bad. You know, the Democrats have to get Mueller in front of them because there are questions in his methodologies that they have to explore. There's no doubt about it. But what Mueller realized is that um, getting on television, that one that one clip, I mean, I looked at that double negative where he says, you know, if we hadn't found something, uh, that was actually perfect fit for a Chiron. So that, that little thing that we all see across the bottom of yeah. TV screen, Chirons are very powerful because a lot of people look at channels like CNN when they're at airports and when they're traveling. They don't necessarily get to listen to the audio, but they see these chirons. I was counting the hours that that one double negative from Mueller was on CNN. I was up to like five hours, I think, before they flipped the chiron. So you have to think that Mueller wrote it for that. He wrote that quote to know that it was just long enough, those words, to continuously remind people, hey, wait a second, it wasn't all smoke. There's a fire here. And just because I'm not in a position to, to, to point out the fire and say, hey, you know, let's go find the arsonist or whatever. Uh, he was saying, there's fire in my report. There's 450 pages of it. Uh, and, you know, the American public are probably not going to read it. Trump and Barr are going to spin it to their narrative. Please, Congress. <laughs> you know, that was what I took as the big takeaway yesterday. I, I'm giving this to you. Follow there's, up. There was another message in, in Mueller's statement, too, that contradicts another thing that Barr said. And you just referenced it a second ago. Uh, Barr says that there can't be any 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 possibility of a cover-up because there's no crime. Mueller uh, it was quite clear on that in what he said yesterday, that impeding the, the investigation is a crime. That's right. That's a crime. And if you're doing that, then you, you're committing a crime. And he didn't say if. He said when. So if you listen to his 10 minutes over and over, as many of us have, he said when the subject of an investigation uh, you know, takes actions to impede that investigation. So the, he didn't leave it open that there was a subtlety there. And there are 10 instances in the Mueller report yeah. where he felt as though that that was what was happening. But he didn't move towards it. He indicted, what, 23 other people in, the, mm -hmm. in his process? Um, but he didn't indict the president because he believed strongly that it wasn't fair based on justice policy. Um, so you know what? Mueller is, is a Boy Scout. And I think America needs people who are completely fair and nonpartisan in situations like this. However, he has now fully said to Congress, it's up to you. And you know, the numbers are increasing. You had, as Nancy Pelosi was saying, only you know 35 to 38 Democrats who were fighting for impeachment. Now the number's up to 40. And I'm interested to see when they all get back to Washington whether or not there, there's going to be more pressure on Pelosi to at least start impeachment hearings. Mueller also made a statement yesterday that uh, I, I think is, is very germane to this discussion. Uh, because, again, we saw what happened when the Mueller report was, well, I was going to say released. It was Barr that really released it and mm -hmm. gave us his spin on it before we, anybody even laid eyes on it. But he essentially said in, in, in his statements, in Barr's statements, that uh, I've made the decision. I've looked this over. Of course, he didn't read the report in two mm -hmm. days. I mean, come on. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. But he said we didn't see any evidence of anything, so he's been exonerated. Uh, Mueller made the point again yesterday 
that he said it wasn't his call. It's supposed to be the Congress. He actually quoted from the Constitution that said that this is supposed to go. The only body that can actually do this is not a judicial body, but the the Congress themselves. So Barr actually just, he he superseded his own authority by by saying what he said. Well, and that's, that's, I think, the the informative part of the Barr strategy here, right? We know he wrote the big, long memo about not being able to indict a sitting president, which got him the gig as the Attorney General, and he was kind of falling on his sword for the party. He'd done it before, and he had not much to lose, as he said in the congressional hearings. Ah, well, you know what? <laughs> what you know, I might as well. And here he was in there, and the, the whole bar strategy was to take advantage, I think, of the general ignorance and civics of America right now. And, and Canada, I don't know how much better we are at this, but people don't know that. They don't no. know that this guy can't just declare exoneration, and, and they don't understand that the only remedy against high crimes and misdemeanors or crimes at all by a president is through the congressional branch of the U.S. government. So people who don't know it will buy what they're sold. And I think Trump has brilliantly taken advantage of that lack of knowledge of general norms and civics uh, in so many areas. And the fact that they are all relentlessly, constantly flooding the zone with false narratives and with confusing information and contradictory narratives, it gets to a point where Americans are like, I can't sort it out. Therefore, am I making more money? Is my job secure? I'm going to vote for him again. And I, and I think that's where we're going to be. Uh, Biden or whoever is not going to be running against Trump and all of this nonsense, they're going to be running against Trump's economy. Which is another narrative that we can sure. get into right now. The more pressing one, I guess, is what's going to happen next week when Congress gets back to Washington. Uh, they were, very few of them were there. Pelosi was out on the West Coast. A bunch of other ones were there. I mean, they've all commented on it. Mm-hmm. But does this create more pressure for them to move ahead? It does. And I think that Pelosi... Uh, candidly said yesterday, she's aware that when people are out there in their constituencies, that Americans, Democratic Americans, want impeachment. So it's not that she's going to hear something when they come back uh, that she doesn't already know. Nancy's clearly knows what she's doing. She's the second most powerful person probably in the world at the moment, right? Because she holds the fate Mm -hmm. of, of the presidency and of the election in her hands in many ways. And so, you know, she has always played the long game, which is if we get caught up in impeachment hearings, it'll turn into this almost civil war of ideas. Uh, that's my language, not hers. And it'll become super hyper-partisan. And, and we will lose our narrative around health care and around infrastructure and these other things that the Democrats felt in the 2016 midterms were so successful for them. So she knows that the, the end goal has to be to remove Trump as president. Uh, she said some very harsh words about what she believes he's been involved with. She's not mincing words, and it got him very upset last week. Uh, but she also thinks... How do I actually beat him? Is it through an impeachment spectacle that doesn't get ratified by the Senate? Uh, or is it by focusing like a laser on the things that are going to get us the votes in 2020? That's a hard calculation because a lot of people are prioritizing removal of this president or at least some kind of sanction of this president over maybe some of those other issues at the moment. So does she have the ability to, to get through the passion of the moment? Does uh, just. Jerry Nadler, who's the chair, of course, the Judicial Committee of the Congress, uh, does he ask Mueller to come or order Mueller to come? I think, Subpoena he, order? I think he has to. You know, and even if Mueller just reads through the 450 pages, you know, like a gigantic filibuster kind of thing we've seen in the past for 25 hours. So do, do that. Let the American people have the television record. And that's why Trump so much didn't want Mueller to ever be on TV, because words are so much more damning when they're when they're expressed by someone with the credibility and the seriousness of a Robert Mueller. 
And more importantly, Americans aren't going to read this until the movie comes out at some point, and even that movie is going to be biased by the director. So the point being, getting it on the record on television is a powerful tool for the 2020 election and for America's understanding of history, and I think that Nadler has to get him there. By the way, I, I had the sound down, obviously, because I was on the air when he made a speech yesterday at 11 o'clock. And I, so I, I was reading the Chirons, too. But I couldn't help but be struck by the fact that, boy, he looks like Robert De Niro. Doesn't he ever? <laughs> I kept trying to. And, and you know what? Bill Barr looks exactly like, um, oh, his name just escaped me, the actor who was in Roseanne, the husband. John Goodman. John Goodman. It, yeah. it blows me. I, it's a hard time listening. But here's the thing. SNL will hopefully do their thing with De Niro on the weekend. One of the things that was notable, though, Barr, when he made his spin press conference, he needed to be flanked by flunkies. Remember? He had Rosenstein and somebody else, and it looked like a hostage video. Mueller did not require to be buttressed by by sycophants or subservience or whatever else. He just stood there on his own merit, on his own work product. And that is a powerful... Po- we saw that when Jody Wilson-Raybaud decided not to have people flanking her yeah. either. It's a powerful moment for television, and Trump understands TV better than any of us do. Uh, so getting more Mueller on camera is, is a win, I think, for history and for the Democrats. There is no smoking gun. That's pretty obvious. But there is some damning evidence in that report. And, uh, and I think your point well taken. Most Americans aren't going to read it. They're going to mm-hmm. read the Chirons on whatever network they're watching, and that that's going to make their determination that, as to where I, they're going to stand. But I watched Fox News yesterday afternoon, and not only was Judge Napolitano saying clearly that um, Mueller contradicted Barr, and this was a big deal, but there's also some other hosts, not just Shep Smith, but some others. So the afternoon Fox hosts uh, very much felt as though they were moving away from Barr and Trump in this. They were siding with Mueller, and the fact that Mueller contradicted Barr so eloquently. It wasn't until the evening when the entertainment folks get on there and Geraldo saying, you know, they're going to have to go through him physically to impeach this, all this stupid nonsense last night that had Hannity and Geraldo both trending this morning. Uh, but that's that's Fox Entertainment. No, Hannity has the most watched show in the U.S., so it's a powerful medium. But the, the actual thinkers at Fox, the journalists, recognize that yesterday was momentous. It's not over. I mean, Trump wants it to be over. He's tweeted all morning. It's over. It's been done. The ball's really in Nadler's court and in Pelosi's court right now for next steps. Yeah, one of the challenging things, though, I think, is that, uh, you know, Pelosi seems to feel that Trump wants impeachment because he'll use it on the campaign trail. It's part of his great victim narrative. He loves that stuff. But I don't think that she can go down in history as making it just a sheer political strategic calculation. I think there is a responsibility by the Congress to do its congressional oversight. I don't see how they don't at least start the impeachment hearings, if not take the vote. Laura Babcock, uh, president of Power Group. Thanks, as always. Great having you here today. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very important topic I want to get into right now. A local NDP MPP has brought forward a private member's bill named after her little sister that would establish a pediatric hospice palliative care strategy. Uh, this is very important stuff that, uh, that we have actually touched on on the program in the past. Uh, Sandy Shaw is the MPP, by the way, uh, who introduced the bill. Uh, and it's called the uh, the Nancy Rose Act. Nancy Rose was uh, her young sister who died at a very, very young age uh, from leukemia. Uh, and she still remembers uh, what happened there. And, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this, first of all, I think it's a great idea. But more importantly, we have touched on this in the uh, the series we have been doing over the last little while with the Bob Kemp Hospice about dealing with grief and about dying. Uh, especially uh, we did one segment that I know was very emotional for an awful lot of people, and that had to do with kids who are dying. Uh, and there may not be the protections and the uh, the supports in place that there should be 
which I hope is uh, one of the things that this bill is going to address. But I wanted to uh, bring Claire Freeman into the discussion. Claire, of course, is the executive director for the Dr. Bob Kemp Hospice here in Hamilton. Uh, Claire, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me. This really resonated with me when I was reading the story about this uh, yesterday, Claire, because it reminded me of the segments that you and our panels have done on this program uh, this is a tough subject when we start talking about kids uh, who are uh, in, in situations like this so, that are dealing with diseases and fatal diseases and, and basically dying. And, uh, well, I know that you have done something at the hospice about, about resources for families that are dealing with this and kids that are dealing with this. But on an overall broader picture, uh, it seems as if we've got a lot left to do here. I think so, absolutely, because, um, again, it's it's every parent's worst nightmare to think that, uh, you know, your child will be born with a serious illness that could take their lives and as well as develop, like, uh, a serious illness through, like, a cancer or some other childhood uh, illness, um, like meningitis. So it's all of our worst fears. So we somehow, somehow want to believe that all children are saved. So, therefore, you know, when families are thrust in the system, they also often feel isolated, alone, and fragmented from the community. Um, so they spend their life in the hospital, but when they leave the hospital, they don't feel the community supports around them. I mean, there's a lot that's been done, and one of the things that we've we've done in the last year, we're expanding our visiting volunteer program and, and a day wellness program specifically for pediatric uh, families. Um, so that's a start. And we're also working with our, our partners at Hamilton Health Sciences Children's Hospital, who also see this, this as something to move forward on. And they've got that great Dr. Lysacki, who was on the show before, yeah. um, who does some great outreach and has been really the person spearheading the idea that we need to do more for children in our own community. It's a, a troubling thing because I know that, I think we touched on this with our panel discussion, uh, when we bring up the subject of quote-unquote end of life, I think the immediate picture that's conjured up in our minds is end of life, in other words, elderly people. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's a shock to us. I mean, I guess we understand there is a reality of it, that end of life can sometimes come at 17 or 18 months or even sooner. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even prenatally. Yeah. Um, and so how do we support families through that? You know, we have uh, young people in our hospice, even like 21, 25, 28. Um, and it's hard to imagine like a life just beginning um, that ends so so quickly. And so what do we have for supports? Like the adult hospice system or the adult system approach to um, end of life care is not the same as what children need. Children need a specific kind of uh, support system. And that's why our hope here in the city is that at one point we will have a separate hospice palliative care approach for seriously ill children. Um, and uh, and you can't just add a bed in an adult hospice to do that. Talk to us about that attitude and, and the different sorts and the different needs, I guess, Claire, that really are, are going to be in play here. Well, number one is children aren't little adults. They are, you know, developmentally differently at a different stage than um, our um, adults, and they also have siblings at home. The family are often in the beginning of their career, so one family has to give up, so there's a lot of financial restraint. Um, There is, you know, if there's other kids in the home, then they're often, you know, shoveling back and forth to different family members because the families are spending time in the hospital. So the family feels really fragmented. And then also they miss school because of the illness, Um, so how do they keep up with that? And then when you get to end of life, um, you know, lots of people have even in the adult system, this, this ideological view that uh, we, you want your child to die at home or you're an adult to die at home, but sometimes the illness um, just doesn't allow for that. 
or also the family situation doesn't allow for that. And what we do know is that dying in the hospital is not the best outcomes, particularly around um, life after the person passes away. So how do you support the family systems? And I really do believe, after being in the hospice for the last four and a half years, that it, there is a remarkable difference between an end of life in a hospital and an end of life in a hospice. Well, and, and that's marked. Anybody who's uh, had the hospice experience with a loved one understands uh, the difference, and, and and it is still care. We get that, but it's a different kind of care. It's a different attitude, uh, which is why we're such a, a strong believer, obviously, in in the hospice policy. And I, I was just hoping the provincial government kind of gets the message and I, and 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 can move more in that direction. When we start talking about long term uh, benefits to our healthcare system. Uh, hospice has to be part of that discussion, and and uh, we have to also accept the reality, although it may be an uncomfortable reality for many of us, that uh, that young people die too, and they need to be looked after. Absolutely, and Hamilton has a, a, an amazing children's hospital, and when you look at Ottawa, children's hospital is an amazing uh, children's hospital as well. I mean, the volumes that Hamilton does and the volumes that Ottawa have, Hamilton is actually a busier hospice, hospital, and. Ottawa has a hospice, a beautiful hospice, Roger Nelson's house. Um, and we see that Hamilton is a regional center. So what we really want to look at is having, you know, a hub here in Hamilton that will speak to the regional issues, like in Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, going up to Kitchener, because that is the area of Hamilton's Children's Hospital. What about the children themselves? Um, and again, when we talk about end of life, if we're dealing with somebody who's in their, their later years, they have a concept. I mean, they've lived life. They understand that uh, that you know that there's there's a an end point in this. And uh, as as I think you and I have talked about, part of the journey is the end of the journey. Kids, do, do kids understand that? Do they comprehend that? Well, it, it really depends on on the illness, the cognitive level of the child, and the developmental level. So the concept of death can be you know just I'm going to go to sleep. To um, they have a real concept that their life is ending and. Somehow, and sometimes children actually have uh, a realization that that's coming before their actual parents do. Um, and so children um, want to have conversations about that. So people think, oh, we need to protect children, we need to protect the siblings, but that protection actually sometimes harms. So it's how do you bring that up to that child, and that's where the expertise comes in, that you need the right expert who knows how to explain that to um, a child and a family at their developmental age, at their cognitive le- level, um, and also how do you then support the family so they can have the kind of legacies that they need, making the memories that they need to, to, to have, but then also key is the bereavement, and there is no bereavement uh, once you step outside of the hospital. Um, and so we really need to do a job so that these families don't fall apart. There's a, a conceptual thing that comes into play here, and, it, and it's not meant to be derogatory. I think it's just the reality. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the Children's Hospital in the city is incredible, and the work that they've done is, is just marvelous. Uh, and there are some support services. There's Ronald McDonald House right across the road for families, and, and that's wonderful. Uh, but the other element to this, too, is is just on a, on a conceptual thing, Claire, as you and I have discussed in the past, uh, hospitals, by definition, are there to try to help people get well. Uh, and at end of life, it's a different attitude, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, when you know that this illness will um, take somebody's life, then you absolutely know that you need a different approach. And so, you know, people think that once I know that I am palliative, that all hope ends. And it's it's contrary to that. It's a different kind of hope. It's, it's a kind of hope to make the memories mean something, make sure that that person is comforted so they're not in pain and there's a specialized care that you give to uh, folks um, as the illness um, progresses. 
that that needs to be shifted so well, but it's also the personal care. Like in the hospice, we do all kinds of things. If you want to be outside every day, we'll wheel your bed outside every day so you hear the birds and and you um, can look at nature. Or if you want to have people come over and have a big party, like we've done parties. We've had like horses brought up to the hospice or people ride um, the HSR bus. So there's a lot of little things that you can do to make significant memories and to give people, you know, great quality of life because just because your life is ending doesn't mean <laughs> you're dead. And, and sometimes people think that once I know there is no cure, there's no living to be left. And, and that's contrary to what we believe. Well, and, and hospitals, by definition, are kind of a clinical environment. And, and, and in fairness, I understand that even the Children's Hospital have tried to, to change that a little bit and make it uh, you know, far more uh, comforting, I guess, and, and more comfortable for families in situations like that with that kind of environment that they create. But, but we've seen the hospice experience, and, and I can see how beneficial it would be uh, to families that are dealing with, uh, with uh, the inevitable death, obviously, of, of a young child. Or, as you mentioned, it could be somebody in their teen years, could be anything in situations like this. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's a different approach. It's a different mindset, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, oops, sorry. Um, that is, uh, that's really what we want to bring forth. And what we do know, and like we said, is that children are different. And so we can't do the approach that we've done with adult care. So some people think, oh, just, you know, add a bed to um, an adult hospice. But you know, respite is a bigger part of what we give to these families um, because they need it, because the illnesses can, can be longer than adult population. And again, it's so key to support the whole family systems, including the siblings and the aunts and the uncles at, at home. So it's just a different kind of approach. And, uh, and, I, and again, like, uh, I applaud the hospitals. The hospitals have saved many, many lives, but they're there for saving lives. And there's a different kind of approach that they need versus end-of-life care. And glad you brought that up because uh, we've seen, again, with the hospice care that the, the, the family is included. Uh, it, it's obviously you're concerned about the, the, the patient and, and the one who's dealing with the inevitable here, but obviously that's going to have an impact on each and every person in the family. Uh, so that has to be counted in, in the counseling and, and offering services for people sometimes to just listen uh, to some of the emotions that uh, that people are going through. Uh, but you, of course, I, I wanted to also mention, because I think this has to be part of, of the spectrum of, of dealing with families that are at, look at it, end of life for young people especially. Uh, I want to mention about the camp that you have, too, because, I mean, this has an impact on each and every person in the family. Absolutely. Um, so we uh, started uh, what used to be called Camp Aaron, um, and we now renamed it Camp Keaton after Keaton Miller, who passed away here mm -hmm. in Hamilton at the age of seven. Um, and so basically we take all children who have a bereaved experience, so it's not just palliative bereavement, but it really is, could be any kind of death, uh, tragic death, um, a sudden death. Uh, and so we bring children, about 50 children, up to a camp, um, and basically we do some bereavement ac activities, but we give them a regular camp experience. So they go um, rock climbing and drum playing and fishing and all kinds of stuff, and basically it's the first time these children can actually really tell the impact on what has happened to them where they don't feel isolated because when they go to school, it's not the average child who's experienced what they've experienced. And so they've, for the first time, they're around other kids who've also lost. And it's, it's, it, I'm a clinical therapist and I've done a lot of things in my life and I can honestly say it's the most powerful experience um, that I've ever, ever encountered. 
Let's. Uh, I don't want to get too deeply into the politics. We'll talk with Sandy Shaw about that, I guess, in the, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, private members' bills invariably don't have much of a chance uh, for one reason or another, and, and uh, sadly, too often it's political. Uh, I, I know that this is going to go to second reading, obviously, but that's really part of the, the, the process and protocol. Uh, what happens after that is, is really going to determine whether or not this happens. So I guess my question, with the years that you've been working uh, in this field, Claire, do you get the sense that, that the Ministry of Health, uh, whatever government is in charge, that the, but the Ministry of Health themselves are, are, are starting to awaken to the importance of hospice care and how, it, how important it is, in, in, in the politi- the, especially in the medical spectrum? I, I do. I, I'm very hopeful in that area. Yes, I haven't heard anything um, from any of the parties to say that they don't support hospice care. I think we you know there still needs to be a, a greater understanding of, of the value that hospice care does to the community, and certainly I would support better funding. Um, but I do think that um, this is really a nonpartisan bill, like, you know, every one of us is going to die. Um, and so it is an issue in all of our lives. It's just what do we believe that people deserve to have at end of life. And I think that we need to do a better job. So I would hope that um, this government can see the value of a provincial strategy group for pediatrics because we haven't had a provincial one that's been funded. We do have a provincial group that's been working hard. So I would hope that they would see that. And I have talked to Donna Skelly, our, our local mm-hmm. MPP here, and uh, she's been excited about some of the community-based work that we're doing and bringing community people who are already doing some work with seriously ill children so uh, I see that people want to step forward, and I hope that they will step with both feet in on this and not just kind of look from the outside. And that's interesting, and I think a very important part of this. A lot of the stuff that may have to be part of the solution here is already there. It's really just a matter of tying a lot of the stuff together. It's not like we were just starting to reinvent the wheel here. Absolutely. Uh, it's just enhancing it, and it's actually just bringing it out to the forefront. And uh, I think that, you know, as a community, we all want to ask ourselves, what do we think we deserve at end of life? And then really put that forth to our politicians. And I think that we all deserve, uh, you know, what some people call is a good death, but we also deserve to have our family support it and the bereavement so that our families can heal and, and basically uh, continue to live great lives. Claire, as always, thanks so much for the insight into this. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem, and thanks for having us. You betcha. Take care. Claire Freeman, Executive Director of the Dr. Bob Kemp Hospice. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.